Have you heard The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater? All of season one is available now, so listen and find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of RealSimple.com. Having a baby changes everything, as anyone who has done it will tell you. There are all the expected upheavals, the sleeplessness, the new schedules, the wonder and love you feel for your child. But one change that isn't as widely discussed is the sometimes radical changes that having a baby has on your relationship with your partner, and in particular, your sex life. Joining me today in the studio to discuss how couples can come back together physically and emotionally after a child comes into the picture is Ian Kerner, a therapist who specializes in sexuality and relationships and is the author of several books, including Love in the Time of Colic, The New Parent's Guide to Getting It On Again. Ian is also the father of two boys. Hi, Ian. Hey, Lori. How are you? I'm good. Good. So your boys are older. You've you've been out of the particular woods that we're going to be talking about today, which is the post-baby haze that really rattles relationships in Uh many ways, good and bad. But let's go back 10 or 12 years to when you had your first son. Okay. um, And things were so rattled in your relationship that you ended up writing a book about, with your co-author, Heidi Rakel, about couples navigating those very difficult years right after childbirth. Yeah, that was uh, that was an interesting period, and just when I thought we'd sort of moved out of it, we got pregnant with the second <laughs> child, and it all happened all over again. And I'd like to think that uh, I learned some lessons and, and and proved a little bit. But yeah, it was a a big transition. Um, as a dad, I think one of the um, the biggest changes was sort of the uh, loss of erotic focus with my wife and the loss of uh, attention that had sort of been directed my way. I mean, I remember before the birth of my son, she used to always comment on how I looked and what I was wearing in the morning. And then after he was born, I could have just walked out of the house naked without a, a comment. <laughs> I think the other big change was the kind of the social isolation uh, that happened and sort of the cutting off from friends, the going from... Um, a kind of a life that had some unpredictability and novelty to something that became much more regimented and patterned. Um, I think that had a big impact on our sex life. And of course, just the uh, the schedules and the fatigue and the changes in self-image and body image. I mean, it really was like boot camp for redefining our relationship. And I think that statistically, I think after the fir- birth of a first baby, that can be one of the most challenging, grueling periods that a couple goes through and really having to rebalance and redefine their relationship. And paradoxically, I think that sex can be one of the biggest sources of positivity in a relationship as you kind of redefine yourselves. But it's also one of the first things that can easily get thrown uh, thrown out the window. So... In your book, Love in the Time of Colic, which is one of my favorite book titles ever, you wrote it with a woman who's not your wife, your co-author. And what was interesting about the book is that it gives, it really does give the reader a perspective of how both men and women 
see this time. Your co-author, Heidi, I remember, writes a lot about the sort of erotic charge that she was able to get from her baby, that like being a new mom, you have a lot of physical closeness with this other being. You have a lot of unconditional love coming your way. You have a lot of, you get a lot of juice that Mm -hmm. way. And that for the father often, you know, he's not, he, he might be carrying and holding and feeding and bathing the child, but it's not the same kind of bond and therefore they're not only they're not feeling the love and and physical attention of their partner they're also not getting that same charge from the baby right right i think that's very true i mean that energy is a kind of erotic energy that's focused on doting and connection and touch and as a father it is really uh, easy to kind of feel like a third wheel and kind of just Uh, retreat into the background, I think, as dads. I mean, I was very much a stay-at-home dad on a on, on one level, but but my wife sort of still kind of set the rules and was like the proactive force. So it really is easy for a dad to kind of gradually retreat. And, and I think for men especially, um, a sexual connection uh, is so important in feeling an overall connection. And so once you really start to lose that connection, which which does happen over the course of the third trimester and after the birth of a of a baby, it's really easy to go three, six, seven, or eight months without any kind of sexual connection. You really can feel isolated. It can trigger um, different types of mental disorders, anxiety, depression. A lot of men just really retreat into a world of uh, porn and and masturbation. And uh, you can start to feel like, like a little bit of an outsider to the whole thing. And it is a, it is a strange... Um, alienating feeling. I will say the the first time around, I was pretty grumpy about it. Well, that's what was so interesting about the book is that you're pretty upfront with the fact that you're kind of a jerk Yeah, to your wife. <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't come off that great. <laughs> no, I'm sorry about all of that. I've tried to make up for it since. But yeah, but you know, so look, so I, w- I was sort of sexless. I felt like a third wheel. I was grumpy about it. I think I felt very rejected. I think I was hot-headed. I got angry at my wife. I got angry at my kids. I got angry at my life. And in some ways, what I was doing, I was performing a vital function. And then in some ways, I was really trying to tell my wife, listen, we need to become a threesome here. Uh, I mean, you need to come back into this marriage. I need to come back into the marriage. Sexuality needs to happen. I mean, we want this child to be happy. A happy child has happy parents. Happy parents are connected parents who love each other and affectionate and and make love to each other. So I think the function that I was performing was vital because otherwise I think my wife would have just spun out into the the land of raising my son. So I was doing – I was performing a vital function, but I was going about it in all of the wrong ways. So what are the right ways to go about that? I mean, I think that what you experience is probably very common. And your statistic that you mentioned before, this 90% of couples, men and women, talk about relationship decline after the birth of a baby. So it's clearly something that a lot of people experience. What is the best way to go about reconnecting without being a jerk? Right. (laughs) 
you know, so Lori, I think to answer that question, I would just want to take one step backwards and say sort of, well, what is what is sexual desire in the first place? And I think, you know, we have a notion that's very popular, especially in, in media and in Hollywood, the, this idea of spontaneous desire, that desire sort of emerges from nowhere. It just kind of happens. And you see your partner and you want to rip off their clothes and jump into bed. And, and that's, that's, that, is a, that is the model of spontaneous desire. It is a model that fits many men. Not all men, but many. And it's a, it's a model that fits some women, but certainly not all. And what the latest science of sexuality is showing is that while men experience spontaneous desire and say only need a single sexual cue, and remember at that time it could be my wife bending over to put the dishes in the dishwasher, that was enough of a single sexual cue. She's like, are you crazy? I'm peed on, pooped on, puked on, dripping everywhere, and you want to have sex? Yeah, all I needed was that single Mm -hmm. sexual cue. And what the latest science of female sexuality is showing is that women experience responsive desire. And women don't experience this spontaneous, you know, desire emerging from nowhere. They don't need a single sexual cue. They need multiple uh, sexual cues. But what does that mean exactly? Like, what is if if Hollywood was going to illustrate that, which they won't because they only want us to think that people have sex on kitchen counters. But if they were, what would that look like? Okay. Well, what would uh, multiple sexual cues look like? First of all, there would be a lot of non-sexual intimacy. Part of the concept of responsive desire is that, well, the, the filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard said that every story has a beginning, middle, and an end, but not necessarily in that order. And when you think about sex, we tend to think of desire as sort of the once upon a time in the story. It's the beginning. But when you look at female sexuality, really arousal is the beginning of the story, and desire emerges from arousal. So for many women, and I think especially for a woman who's just had a baby, desire may not emerge until uh, the middle of the story or even the end of the story. So one thing that it would look like is cultivating an environment where you can have arousal before you decide if you're interested in sex. So that would include a lot of non-sexual physical intimacy between mom and dad. Studies show that uh, holding, uh, hugging for 30 seconds or more can really increase oxytocin. Women spend a lot of time with babies for 30 seconds or more, but what about a 30-second hug between mom and dad to kind of get that bonding going? So I think, first of all, you'd see a lot more of a commitment to arousal without the expectation of sex. I think that you would see um, an, an environment that was maybe a little more organized around prioritizing sex and intimacy. I think a lot of us, I know with my wife, both my sons slept in the bed. It was 24-7, that bedroom. It was the farthest thing from being a love nest in terms of my wife and I. So I think, you know, getting a little stricter about the place that you're going to have for sex. I think um, getting creative uh, around your schedules. I mean, I remember what one thing that my wife and I found was that Wednesday afternoons kind of worked for us. Whoever thought a Wednesday afternoon would be your sexy time? And we both love theater, actually. So one of the things we started to do is make a kind of a Wednesday matinee date day. You know, we forget date nights. We just try to get in a, a date afternoon, a date day. And so it was It was those sorts of, um, that sort of reorganization. Ian, can you 
explain exactly what the difference between arousal and desire is? Yeah. Well, you know, Masters and Johnson, who we can all go watch on the Masters of Sex, they, um, I think that they observed uh, 10,000 acts of uh, intercourse uh, between men and women. And they sort of plotted out what it looked like. And they began with their first phase being excitement, and that being really the physiological arousal that happened in the bodies, uh, in, in, in people's bodies. So when I talk about arousal, I'm really talking about excitement. I'm talking about physiological stimulation, and I'm talking about psychogenic and mental stimulation. It was a later sex therapist named Helen Singer Kaplan who came along and said, well, you know what's missing is is desire, just the wanting to have sex, the starting point. That makes a lot of sense and seems you know, scientifically to make a lot of sense, intellectually that makes a lot of sense. And yet I think about what I was like after mm-hmm. I had children and what was going on mentally, physically, and just the utter chaos in my household. And I think it's really difficult mm-hmm. for maybe women in particular, or maybe I'm just talking about myself, to mm-hmm. compartmentalize and to say, I'm going to leave this house a mess. I'm going to leave this baby crying. Mm-hmm. And I am just going to trust that if I take a tumble into, you know, in bed with my husband, it will all start to, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. happen. Mm -hmm. I think there's a big hurdle in those early Mm -hmm. days of motherhood and parenthood. And so how, you know, you Mm -hmm. can understand this intellectually, but I also think that there are tremendous hurdles at that particular moment in life. But how do you make sure that it doesn't turn into a years-long dry spell just because your life has been upended. Yeah. I mean, uh, can you speak a little more to your personal experience (laughs) and how you were able to uh, to, to navigate that? I mean, I completely agree. I mean, and just to, to scientifically corroborate what you're saying, studies show that for women to experience arousal and have orgasms, parts of the female brain that are associated with stress, anxiety, and high emotion need to deactivate and that women need to be lulled into kind of like a trance-like state. And I agree with a messy house, with uh, worrying about the next feeding schedule, with a crying baby, that does not facilitate, you know, that kind of mental deactivation. I think I also remember, and again, it's it's such a blur because of how sleep-deprived I was, but I also remember that I felt so divorced from my old self and my own life that when I did have a few minutes I wanted to do things that made me feel like my old self again. And that could have been reading or mm-hmm. taking a walk or getting out of the house. It had, I didn't, I remember feeling like I didn't want anyone to want anything from me <laughs> when yeah. I had a moment of downtime. I wanted to mm-hmm. just have a bit of my, mm-hmm. a bit mm-hmm. of freedom. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. So you perceive sex as just sort of another want, another At request. At that another... moment, because my body was already being hijacked by this child. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it felt like I just, you know, and I mm-hmm. had been through so much yeah. physically. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, um, there was one really interesting study that I read um, that uh, out of the University of Michigan that showed that new mothers actually do start to experience desire in some cases sooner 
than expected. And the main factors in experiencing desire are psychological more than necessarily hormonal or biological. And so sort of setting up that psychological context. And the interesting thing, too, was that prior to actually returning to sex, there was first a return to oral sex, a female partner pleasuring her male husband. And one of the biggest factors in the return to sex was understanding that their partners wanted it mm -hmm. and then feeling that need, not necessarily as a pressure, but just connecting to the desire, the idea of being wanted. And so many women found that first just returning to pleasuring a person as opposed to being pleasured was a start. Then returning to self-masturbation and self-pleasure was key for a lot of women. So letting themselves fantasize a little bit, letting themselves touch themselves, indulging in a relaxing bath, and then fantasizing buying a sex toy. Then from there, it was a return to mutual oral sex. Um, and then the next step was actually uh, penis-vagina intercourse. Um, so right there, I think, are some, some interesting potential steps. I, I, nothing's going to change the fact that your sleep schedule is still wrecked, I know, and the baby is still crying and the house is still a mess. But I like that idea of sort of saying like, okay, maybe I don't have to rush into intercourse or the kind of sex that we were having in the past, but maybe there's a, a new kind of sex script that will emerge that begins with me just recognizing that there is this other person out there that kind of wants to be connected with and pleasured and maybe I need to connect with myself a little bit. And I think that also, I think that sort of spreading that message is an important one because I think that, again, we're all very influenced by the Hollywood version of what, you know, we're supposed to do when it comes to sex. And so I think probably if couples could know beforehand and when they're taking their childbirth classes could also get a little sex information in there <laughs> yeah. that if they knew that, you know, like if I had known what you just said back when my kids were born, I think I would have, the pressure would have been off a lot and it wouldn't yeah. have looked the way I thought of it in my head, which is like, okay, after the doctor gives me the go ahead to have sex again, I just got to jump right back into bed and like, you know, be that my, you know, the, the way yeah. I was when we first met, I think people feel like it's supposed to look a certain way. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And actually, you need to develop the habits. I mean, look, hopefully you start to develop those habits prior to having a baby. If not, you figure it out on the other side. But, um, you know, ultimately, um, I work with couples where they have a three-year-old or a four-year-old and they still don't fig haven't figured out how to really have a date night. You know, it's on occasion. They've been in a sex they've been in sex ruts for years. I mean, you know, ruts beget ruts, and so you really do. And and I get that it takes mindfulness and it takes effortfulness. And I do want to come back to again this idea that I think you have to really put your body through the motions, and maybe it'll lead to sex, maybe it won't. But you have to begin with trying to let yourself get aroused, or in scientific or clinical terms, uh, what we call subjective arousal. Because I can tell you, even as a guy, um, you know, do I want sex? You know, sh sure, sometimes, but just as often, no, I do not. And so what, does the story end there? Because my mind just says no right now? You're listening to The Labor of Love. I'm talking to sex therapist Ian Kerner. 
When we come back, we're going to talk about how our current parenting culture might be contributing to sexless marriages. But first... Today's show is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now, uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. Ian, you and I both know that there is a very hyper-competitive parenting culture that we're both very much a part of, especially here in New York. In the last several years, we've talked a lot and heard a lot about hyper-parenting and how this, our particular generation of parents is very, can be overprotective, over-involved. And I'm wondering if you think that our focus on our children is contributing or can contribute to the fact that couples get, you know, farther away from each other because kids are taking such a primary role in our lives? Yeah, it's a big question. You know, I think I think when we, we when we meet our partners, there's this thrill of infatuation and that there's so much mystery and unpredictability and almost and, and also so much to learn. There's such a journey of mutual expansion and self-expansion. And I think once we have kids, I mean, I think two things happen. Life becomes patterned and ordered in a way that doesn't necessarily lend itself to the spontaneity and unpredictability that fuels sex. So that's one issue, which is how do we just create some novelty and some volatility and some unpredictability? But I think the other thing that happens is that we that that, that having children just consumes so much space that we don't find ways to continue that journey of expansion, uh, self-expansion and, and mutual expansion. Do you think that, I mean, part of that I think has to do with the fact that we are so distracted by other things in our lives these days. I think that we all have our phones in our hands a lot. I think we work very hard. I think that there isn't a lot of downtime and that some of the downtime is really involves, you know, you know, I'm sure, just like I do, parents who spend their entire weekends shuttling their kids from activity to mm -hmm. activity. And at the end of the day, it's just an, you know, there's that same amount of exhaustion as there is during the work week yeah. because we're so depleted <laughs> from yeah. the shuttling. How do parents carve out that time to rediscover each other and to add novelty, as you say, which, as we know from research, is the thing that can spur desire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, John Gottman, who's a, a great couples therapist and researcher, he talked... Uh, and guest on our show. Oh, yeah. Yes. Great. So... 
<laughs> so I don't need to repeat too much, but he, he talks a lot about the differences, what, what makes some couples succeed and others fail. And the ones who succeed have a much higher ratio of positive to negative interactions than the ones who fail. And even when they are arguing with each other, they somehow manage to do it in a more positive, respectful way. And that, and Gottman says, ultimately, you kind of want to get into a five-to-one zone of five positive interactions for every negative one. And it's almost impossible to do, especially with little kids. And I, I just want to say that I think that sex is an extra burst of, of positivity. I mean, the the way it makes you feel in the moment, especially if you're both mutually having orgasms, the intimacy, the connection, the way it reinforces that secure attachment. Studies have shown that people who have sex regularly um, tend to take better care of themselves. They eat better. They exercise better. They even do better at work. They're less likely to cheat. I mean, just the, the self-esteem that comes out of positive connected sex is, is so tremendous. So I, I would say, first of all, that sex is really worth prioritizing. I mean, it's really worth putting to the top of the schedule. It's really worth writing into your schedule. So so I, I, I would maybe begin with there. And, and, and couples do say, how often should we be having sex? And uh, I think I would go out on a limb and I would say it is worth trying to have mutually uh, gratifying sex a minimum of once a week. And we just learned that that is, did you read last week's study that we'll be discussing? No, on a, we will be, tell me. Last, last <laughs> week, a study was released that found that once a week was the amount of time that cup, the happiest couples had sex. It wasn't more than that or less than that. It was a, it was actually once a week. And we are going to hopefully be having that researcher on the show in the next Great. week. So one thing that comes up a lot with new moms, and I'm shifting gears a little bit here, uh -huh. but I think a lot of women, in addition to the upheaval that happens, you know, hormonally and, um, you know, psychologically after the birth of a child, I've talk to I don't know how many new moms and not even new moms but moms who are so freaked out and self-conscious about the way their bodies have changed physically mm -hmm. as a result of carrying a baby having a baby nursing and all of that I wondered if you in your research and in your book and in your practice what's your advice for women who are just feeling kind of alienated from their new selves and that becomes a barrier to mm -hmm. physical intimacy. Mm -hmm. One thing I would say is please do communicate that to your husbands, your partners. I think a lot of men um, are just kind of destabilized and disoriented and confused and don't really get it that you don't feel sexy. And if you don't feel sexy, you're not going to want to have sex. And so I would say, you know, you know, first of all, please communicate that and uh, hopefully start a, a sexy, arousing conversation. So I want to end on a practical note, which is that we all get a lot of unsolicited advice before we have children, and then we get a lot of unsolicited advice after. But we don't generally have, we know we're going to be sleepless. There's a lot of things I felt like I knew were going to happen, even though I didn't know how exactly they would feel. But I think that planning for like a postpartum sex 
plan, you know, having a plan for postpartum sex, not exactly the date it's going to happen again or whatever, but to really know beforehand that this is going to really change yeah. things up would be really helpful. So yeah. what are some things that you would advise couples to do before the baby even arrives to start talking and thinking and planning about so that they don't lose each other in the swirl mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. sleeplessness and dirty diapers for too long? First, I would say get in the habit of creating a 15-minute window every day where you can engage in non-sexual physical intimacy and just get in the habit of generating arousal. So have a make-out session, whatever it is, but start really creating that window to just generate arousal. I would say get ready to really change your concept of of sex, you know, so maybe um, you're going to commit to um, giving more than receiving as a way of getting back into your sex life. Really, if you haven't yet opened up a vocabulary with your partner around talking about sex, if you haven't yet gotten to the place where you can share a fantasy or comment on what you like or you don't like or talk about masturbation or have a conversation about how you feel about porn, have those conversations because you need to really get real about sex. And getting real about sex means being able to talk about it. And you'd be surprised, Lori, just how many couples are just sort of lying there next to each other. And they might as well be a million miles apart because they don't know how to have that conversation. Why is it so hard? Why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is it, you mean, like, why is it so easy to talk about everything else yeah. and so hard to talk about Even sex? Even with people you love. I think sometimes we, I think that sometimes there can be a lot of shame around sex, that we are worried about being judged by our partners. I think that we really um, have been raised in a culture that's extremely Victorian uh, and that really um, compartmentalized sex. I mean, really, when you go back to not that long ago, uh, 100, 120 years ago, the only model for thinking about sex was the procreational model. That was the only time uh, you were supposed to have sex. So sex was really, in a lot of ways, kind of divorced from love, divorced from intimacy. Those just weren't, that just wasn't part of the social discourse around sex. So I think in a lot of ways, we've just inherited an extremely... Uh, but even today, I mean, that I, I, I hear you, and yet at the same time, it's, you know... There's more sex to be seen and had and yeah. talked about, thought about than ever before. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you just think about the internet. I, I, I just, I don't know. Right. It doesn't and seem yet like it's we're so hard a, to open up a conversation with right. our partners. I mean, the other tip that I could give people or the thing that I could say and the thing that actually helped me to be able to communicate about sex, because it's sensitive. Like if I say something about your skills you may really take that as a criticism. I mean, I work with so many couples who have so many deep attachment injuries. Oh, we were kissing once and he said he didn't like what I did with my tongue. And now, you know, they never kiss again. So it's very sensitive. What what has really helped me is to understand that talking about sex can be sexy and arousing. So if I want to tell my partner something that I'm interested in or something that I want to change, I can frame that in a really sexy way. You know, I have this really hot fantasy, honey, of, uh, I don't know, tying you up and doing X, Y, and Z. And, you know, already I've changed it from let's try BDSM to something that's sexy and fun and relational. Well, on that note, 
It was great talking to you. It, it always is. Yeah, I love seeing you, Lori. It's awesome. And we hopefully will have you back soon for more conversations about stuff and other things. Thanks again to today's guest, Ian Kerner, author of Love in the Time of Colic, The New Parent's Guide to Getting It On Again. Ian is a New York-based sex therapist. Thank you for joining me today on The Labor of Love. If you'd like to be a guest on our show or if there's a topic you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please email us at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Tim Einenkel, and our engineer, Zach Dinerstein. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find three more podcasts from Real Simple.